Well, this morning uh, we are going to be dealing with some very heavy stuff. Every week, of course, we deal with very big things, uh, spiritual realities. But this morning, particularly, it's going to be heaven. And I, I want to say this up front because I'm conscious that many of you come on a Sunday looking for hope. Rightly, you ought, because the Christian message is a great message of hope. Uh, it is the wonderful hope of the Lord Jesus. We have uh, an incredible message to offer. Um, but that hope comes in the context of a great need. And at times we need to focus on the need. And that's this morning. Uh, and in fact, my purpose today, and I want to be upfront about this, is to not relieve you of your load, which you may be carrying today, but actually to add to it. I want to bring you by the end of this morning with a greater load, perhaps that you might carry, one that you've not been aware of. It might be a load, though, that pushes other ones out. Um, but that's where we want to go. All of us do carry stuff that hangs over us and looms large in our lives, stresses, worries, fears. It seems to me it's only when you're under five that you can live without any kind of anxieties and fears, though under five still have them, of course, but uh, you want an under five-year-old just to grow up and be secure and peaceful and happy and carefree. But there comes a point, and I'm not sure exactly what that age is, I dare say it's when you go to school, um, or homeschooling does it to you quicker. There, there comes a, a stage where adult life bears in on you. Adult life is the point at which you have to face stuff. You have to carry things. You have to carry the pain and hurt and burdens around you. Yeah, that's what adult life is, becoming responsible. Adult life is being alert to the real world and owning that there are things you need to care about for the sake of others and yourself. Um, it might just be the burden that you feel in raising kids. That's adult life. If you've had a child for the first time, you'll carry the burden of how I'm going to raise this child uh, to, to be, uh, know the Lord Jesus, to be happy and healthy and so on. Uh, you'll have that burden. That's an appropriate burden. But you might also have, uh, many of you, the burden of just getting food on the table. D day by day, you live with the thing, I don't have the, I, hand to mouth. And you carry that burden, the need to care for others, to hold down a job, to pay the bills. Some of you are carrying those burdens. If you feel any of this, it's normal. I, I just think it's adult life in a real world. Um, the real world brings stuff to us. Um, some of you are carrying health concerns. You've had a diagnosis uh, of some kind of serious illness and it hangs over you. That's normal. That's normal. Um, we might wish for the carefree life of the child, but that is childish, not in the real world. Now, I say all of this up front because this morning we'll be adding to the load that you carry, or perhaps, as I say, adding a load that might diminish other ones, because what I'm talking about is the fact that at some point in our future, every one of us will stand before the holy judge of all the earth. We will come before him and be required to give an account of everything we've done. And God's judgment will be perfect, it'll be final, and the result of that judgment will be either an internal welcome into his home or to be cast out into eternal condemnation and punishment. Now, just hearing that, is that not a load? Is that not a weight that comes upon us? Isn't something that looms over our experience day by day? 
Of course, only if you're aware of it or think on it. And the point this morning is that we must be aware of it and think on it and pay attention to it. There is nothing, there is nothing in all of your life like this event that's coming. And the consequences for every human are eternal. The loss that many will experience will be dreadful, full of dread. It will be final. Ought that not fill us with concern? Especially because by nature none of us is worthy of being received into God's kingdom. By nature we are, Ephesians chapter 2, by objects of wrath. We deserve condemnation. Today is a very serious topic. Every week, of course. But this morning, particularly so. So my aim this morning is to convince you of the fact of this day and convince you that it must become a truth that looms large in your life and consciousness. And I'm going to do that, I want to convince you of that by considering how it played out in Jesus' life. There's a number of ways we could do this. We could go to the different verses that talk about uh, these things throughout the Bible. Um, There's a place for that. I think you've done some of that through the week. But what I want to particularly do is focus on the person of Jesus and not just tell you how often he spoke about it, but show you what he said. Because my hope in by doing that is that you might see this concern looming large in the life of Jesus and having flesh to it. What does it look like? And then I want to add some further thoughts towards the end about what we do with this, how we cope with it and so on. But I want to take us through the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus, the topic of judgment of heaven and hell loomed large for Jesus because at heart, Jesus was a kingdom preacher. He was one who was centred on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. When you go through his life and teaching, and we're going to go through Matthew's gospel to do this, when you go through his life and teaching, there are a number of things that cluster at the centre of his thought. At the centre of it was the kingdom of God. And so because that was at the centre of his thought, so many other things cluster around it. Now come with me to the very first public word that he spoke. Grab your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus begins to preach, verse 17. From that time on, he began to preach, and here's what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, let me take you through this very briefly. The kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about? Or the kingdom of God in the other Gospels. The kingdom of heaven is the, is the rule of God over his universe and creation, being established as it was meant to be from the beginning, as an uncontested rule. Where God rules without opposition or hindrance, uh, with joy and gladness from all, he rules at the centre as, as is most fitting for him as the creator, sustainer and giver. He's on the throne without there ever being any more rebellion or hostility towards him. Now, of course, God has always ruled and he even rules today. He rules sovereignly over all things, even though people don't accept it. But the thing is, at the moment, he rules in a context where it is contested. His rule is contested. People oppose him in his rule. But Jesus is talking about here, the kingdom of heaven is coming. There's a day coming when that opposition will be all destroyed. His rule will be one that's uncontested seen by all. It speaks of the nature of this future, this rule of God, the King, 
but it also assumes a place for his rule, the kingdom of heaven is coming, the kingdom where the king will be at the centre, finally ruling in a new creation, in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, in light of this coming rule of God, his rule being re-established again, Jesus says, verse 17, repent, repent. Now, what's repent? Well, repent is to do a 180 degree turn, it's to recognise that I have been going down a certain path in life, which was living for myself, ignoring the rule of God, contesting the rule of God, living in apathy towards the rule of God, doing what I want to do. I've been going down this path. Jesus says, repent, do a 180 degree turn in your head and heart, where you now come back under the rule of God in anticipation of Him establishing His rule, that you come back under His Lordship. Why repent? Because when this day comes, all opposition to the rule of God will be crushed. Now that is harsh language, the Bible doesn't hold back. A day is coming when God will judge with righteousness and every person who has ignored Him, dismissed Him, failed to live under His rule as we ought, will be condemned. Repent, says Jesus, as his very first public message, because the kingdom is coming. You see, Jesus is a kingdom preacher, and so the things that cluster around his kingdom preaching are the warnings of judgment, the consequences of judgment, the seriousness of this coming. Things in this life grow strangely dim as he focuses on the coming kingdom. That's the way Jesus was. Let me show you how it plays out. Come with me to the great big sermon that we have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. A wonderful sermon full of beautiful teaching. But what I want you to notice is that when the sermon starts, he's preaching the kingdom. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes end verse 10 with the kingdom of heaven. He's a kingdom preacher. It begins and ends there. And the middle blessings, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. All these middle blessings actually show again how central to his thought is the kingdom coming. Because what he does is he says, it's your attitude to this kingdom, the rule of God being established, that indicates whether you are truly blessed or not. What do I mean by that? Blessed are those who mourn. He's not just talking about anyone who lives in grief being comforted. What he's saying is that those who mourn over the lack of the rule of God's acceptance in our world, those who grieve over the fact that God is not seen to be the glorious king that he is, you will be comforted because the kingdom's coming. Blessed are you who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not just anyone who wants good things. It's those who hunger and thirst for the kingdom of God to be established where the right is done, truth is done, God's rule is done. And Jesus says, blessed are you because that kingdom's coming. The whole thing is dominated by this coming kingdom such that he sees everything in the here and now through that lens. You might have nothing in this world. You might spend your life grieving over the loss of God's rule and the king, but you are the blessed one if you seek through the lens of eternity. This is the whole sermon. There are many wonderful things about living life under God's good hand and trusting him as our father who provides and so on, but constantly he returns to this theme of the coming kingdom and so clustered around it, the coming judgment have a look at chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. 
Jesus says, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you, whoever is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What Jesus is saying here is that God has been against murder, but really what he's been most against is the thing that causes murder, the anger that rises up within a human. And in that context, he says at the end of verse 22, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The kingdom's coming, judgment will happen, and hell is part of that future. Chapter 7, verse 13, he talks about entering through the narrow gate as he comes towards the end of the sermon. Uh, We'll go back to the middle in a moment, but chapter 13, enter through the narrow gate. Why enter through the narrow gate? Because there's a part, there's a thing at the end of the gate, judgment. And if you enter through the wide gate, that road, that gate will lead to, verse 13, destruction. But the narrow gate will lead to life because Jesus is dominated by where we'll end up in eternity. You, in fact, come back with me to his prayer there. Chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus teaches us how to pray. It's a prayer that we love. It's a beautiful prayer. But have you noticed the prayer is all about the kingdom of God? The prayer actually is a series of six requests. Just notice this prayer isn't a conversation with God. It's requesting things of God. You, you, you don't, it's not a back, you ask things of the Lord God. What matters in prayer is that you bring requests to God. What matters though is those requests properly reflect the heart of God. And Jesus says that these are the kinds of requests that properly reflect the heart of God. Requests about his kingdom. That the Father might be hallowed. That the kingdom might come. Yes, in all of those prayer requests, he drops in one about your daily needs. But then he gets back to the kingdom issues again. Jesus is dominated by the kingdom, by the concern that you not be unprepared. Uh, You come with me across to chapter 7 again, towards the end here. Um, Some of the most terrifying, some of the most terrifying words there in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do amazing things in your name? Didn't we do spectacular healings and miraculous signs? And did we not do wonderful, beautiful things for people around us? And Jesus will say, verse 23, I tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. In this sermon, in this very first sermon, large sermon, if you like, there are many beautiful, comforting, inspiring truths. But constantly he turns again and again to the one thing, the kingdom of God is coming. God is going to re-establish his rule over all of creation. Do not come to that day unprepared because it will cost you everything that you have. It will be that you will be cast into utter darkness. You'll be cast out from the presence of God. You'll be cast cast into the fires of hell. And Jesus' heart carries a burden and it's a burden for your soul, your eternal destiny. He doesn't care a great deal about your financial circumstances. He doesn't care what job you... These things are not dominating his thoughts and concerns. Eternity fills his horizon. You know, the rest of his ministry, these things are never far from his thoughts. We haven't got time to go through it all because it's so much. But come with me to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we have recorded for us a series of Psalms that Jesus teaches on the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven like? And a number of these 
parables end with these shocking words of judgment. Have a look there at 13 verse uh, 37. Um, no, verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. There's a judgment coming. God will weed out, verse 41, all that is sin and evil, and they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, you know what's coming. It will cause immense grief and agony, this judgment to happen. You get it again there in verse 47, come across there the parable of the net. Uh, as you go down through that parable, you'll see there verse 49, this is how it will be at the end of this age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus can't leave off this teaching. Come to chapter 16. In a context, verse 24, where he urges his disciples to see what it means to become his disciple, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. He says these words in verse 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for you, someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is not concerned about whether you make a lot of money, whether you have a great life here and now. He says, what good is it if everything goes wonderfully for you here and yet you lose your very soul in the judgment that is coming? You come across to chapter 18. Again, we see it again and again. Verse 8, he repeats uh, the very same thing he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter life maimed or crippled than have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. For us, the greatest concern is there might be some illness or sickness or harm to our body. And Jesus says it's trivial in comparison to the fact that you might end up condemned. You come across to chapter 22. Chapter 22, Jesus is on the same theme. He warns about judgment through chapter 22. And verse 13, he picks up again the issue of being cast into darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And chapter 25, the reading that we had, which probably makes it more explicit than any other, the sheep and the goats, the separation, the judgment between those that belong to Jesus and those that are opposed to Jesus outside of his kingdom. But look where it ends in verse 46. The sheep will go into, the, the goats will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And notice this. Jesus right there in one passage puts an end to the notion that hell is just annihilation. Because it's, eternal punishment is corresponding to eternal life. Life that goes on forever. Punishment that goes on forever. These things, friends, are almost unspeakable, aren't they? But Jesus speaks of them repeatedly. This future event dominates him. It hung over his thinking. It loomed large in his day. He returned to it again and again and again. Do you know, we, we often say, people often say that Jesus was the teacher of love. 
And the Apostle Paul was that hard man who taught on hell. Paul speaks more about love than Jesus, and Jesus speaks more about hell than Paul. Why? Because Jesus is a man of love. He speaks on it to warn people, to do everything he can to say, don't go there. He speaks on it because he comes to save us from it. He is sent by his Father, the Father, the God of love. Jesus is born to be a saviour, to save us from our sins. Not from our lack of self-esteem. Not from our lack of financial wisdom. Not from the foolishness of choices we've made in relation. He comes to save us from that judgment. Because that dominates. Because it itself is so, so serious. Now these are heavy things. And who is not afraid of that day? Well, who is not afraid? The very ones most worthy of it. You see, none of us are worthy. This is the point of having a saviour, one who must come and save us, because none of us can save ourselves. We are, by nature, objects of wrath, Ephesians 2. And this is the beauty of the gospel message, the gospel proclamation that there is a saviour. There is only one, the Lord Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. But there is a saviour that God, the God of love, has given us. Who himself came to take the consequences of our sin upon himself. Do you remember the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? An extraordinary occasion where Jesus is in prayer before the Father, bowed in prayer with sweat like drops of blood, Luke tells us, dropping off his forehead in agony. And he is repeating this prayer, Father, take this cup, take this cup, take this cup from me. What's the cup? It's the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath against sin. And the thought of drinking the wrath of God terrified Jesus. It wasn't just the thought that he'd be nailed to a cross. Many men and women have gone to that kind of crucifixion without fear, courageously. Jesus was no less courageous. He was almost broken by the thought of what was happening the next day, not because of the nails, but because it would mean taking, taking the judgment that Andrew Heard deserves. The thought that he would take my sin upon himself and God's anger at Andrew Heard's sin upon him almost broke him. He thought there about what it would mean the next day spiritually. And yet he steps up resolutely because the Father wills him to do this out of love to pay, to pay the debt that we couldn't pay so that my judgment is laid upon him as the great substitute who stands in my place and suffers hell for me so that I don't need to go there. Friends, the beauty of the gospel message is that there is a saviour, but we are saved from something. And knowing what that thing is, is vitally important. Jesus, everything, his teaching, his words, his prayers are dominated by this. His actions were dominated by this coming reality. 
the judgment and condemnation for creatures brought about by our rebellion, apathy, sin and rejection and evil. The Lord Jesus was captured by these deep and profound truths and came to give his life because of them. Now it raises questions for us, all of this. In the quiet suburban streets of comfortable Australia, we do have our questions about the legitimacy of this. I mean, is it fair to talk of this kind of horrendous future? Is it appropriate to think that a loving God should judge people like this? Is hell an appropriate thing? We have all of these questions. Now, I can't spend much time here because any thoughtful reading of the accounts of Jesus' life and teaching makes obvious that it's true. He says it again and again and again and again. He dies because it's true. But there are a few thoughts that might help us as we reflect on the Scriptures. Is it appropriate that there be a place called hell? Is it appropriate that there be a God who judges us upon our death? Well, as a way perhaps into this, consider a world in which the alternative was true. Consider a world, a universe, where there is no judgment after death. Where we either just die or all of us drift into a beautiful, wonderful life in the future. Consider that world. What does it mean? Well, what it would mean is this, that all of those who have lived the most debauched, hurtful, demonic life, those that have lived hurting and killing and using others for their own ends, who then just die in their sleep, aged 80, get away with it. There's no consequence which means there's no justice in the world. If there is no judgment upon death and no judgment in life, then there is no justice in the universe. That's the consequence of no judgment. Is that the world you want to live in? The events of this last week surely touch us deeply, the horror of the slaughter of infants do you not cry out for justice? Now, not the kind of retaliation that does more harm, but don't you cry out for a kind of justice that is deep and insightful and careful, that truly judges the heart and pays attention to all the context and circumstances that may... Don't you long for that kind of justice? No human judge or court can bring that justice. Only God can. The God who can see into the very heart of a human. He is the only one who can bring true, true justice. You see, we need a universe where there's judgment. We may not like the consequences of it because we know that we're actually not going to survive it, but we need that universe because you take it away, everything undoes, unravels. Let me give you another consequence. What would it mean further if there's no judgment? It would mean that your choices for good or evil don't matter. You, 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 could choose, you could choose to live a life um, of utter selfishness, greed, uh, abuse and use, rob, steal, hurt, harm, do whatever you like, or join Rotary. Is Rotary still around? Join Rotary and try and do good things in the society. You could, choose, you could choose either one of those lives and you'll die and it won't matter. It won't matter which you did. Whichever you like the most, you choose. If you like doing good things, good on you. If you like selfishness and greed, good on you, because no one cares. There'll be no holding to account. We can live as we want, do as we please, die and just disappear if there's no judgment. 
It means our choices have no consequences and it means we have no consequence. Doesn't matter what you choose, you don't matter because no one holds you to account. Do you know, it actually has been said, rightly, that hell is testimony to the dignity of human life. The fact that there is a hell says that your choices do matter. You are dignified as a responsible image bearer of God where you'll be held accountable because God thinks you matter. Your choice, right and wrong matter. Hell is dignity given to human life. But you might say, okay, judgment, sure, but the consequences seem so out of proportion. The way Jesus speaks of it, yes, with tears in his eyes, but the way he speaks of it, of weeping and gnashing eternally, how can that be just? Because all we've done is, well, there's the issue. At the heart of our problem is the very reason we actually as a human race deserve judgment. You see, our problem is that we do not see or more properly do not let ourselves see the holiness of God in all his infinite majesty. We diminish him so much that to ignore him, sure, it's not great, but it's not a big deal. But the Bible keeps elevating the lordship of Jesus, the greatness and glory of God, his supreme and infinite majesty as the creator and sustainer and upholder of all things. Because the greater you see his holiness and majesty, the greater the sense that to offend against him is a thing itself of infinite seriousness. The other thing we fail to let ourselves see is the seriousness of our own sin. We think of it as a mere act of naughtiness, a little moment where we slipped. But what the Bible presents for us is that it's rebellion. It's proud, prideful rebellion against the God who gave us all things. Friends, the consequences are not out of proportion. You know, take great care. We do need to ask questions. We do need to wrestle with these things. But do it with great care. Do it in light of the repeated and heartfelt teaching of the Lord Jesus, the Saviour who came to die. The fact that the cross itself tells us how serious these things are. It took the life of God's only Son to rescue us from this circumstance which tells you itself this circumstances is serious. Why did Jesus die? If all we needed to do was turn over a new leaf. Why did he die if God's anger was not such a great thing? The death of Jesus speaks to the truth of all this. Friends, I've taken us through the life of Jesus to show the truth of this terrifying future. But I've taken us through his life to also show how much it hung over everything he did, he said, he thought. I dare say in his quiet moments, if he had any, his mind drifted there. What will become of these people around me? He came to Jerusalem 
And at the gates of Jerusalem, he wept as he reflected on the eternal destiny of this nation. He said of them that he'd longed to gather them together like a hen gathers the chickens, but they were unwilling. He wept over that. What must I do in all light of all of this, says Jesus? I must go to Jerusalem to be rejected, crucified, die. Sent there by the Father who loves the world so much that he gave me to do this. No doubt Jesus took time out to rest. He slept, he ate, he drank, he went out to dinner with friends. But always at the back of his mind, or dare say at the front of his mind, was this future fact that the kingdom of heaven is coming. It will wipe away everything in this planet. Judgment will follow upon the kingdom coming or in its establishment. And what will consequently happen is that many will face eternal judgment. You know, we've got big things going on in our world. We've just had a referendum, a thing that's dominated public discussion for the last bunch of year, a month, years. And I, the consequence, whichever way the vote went, was going to be dreadful. It will mean pain and hurt for many. There'll be a lot of patching up that needs to be done. The whole thing was run very badly, in my estimation and other comments. But, but let me just say, friends, that is nothing. That is nothing compared to where every human will stand on Judgment Day. Don't imagine, I don't imagine, we can actually live with a heightened state of awareness the kind that Jesus had. I don't think a human, I don't think we can cope such that every thought is just, I think it, humanly it's very hard to do. But, but, Surely a true and genuine sense of these things must weigh upon you often. More than they do at present, surely. See, see, how do we live in light of all of this? It is a terrifying future ahead of us. And it's almost impossible to imagine what it will all mean. How do we live with the fact that many we know are destined to condemnation? I have a family, you know my... How do we live with that? Anyone who is outside the grace and mercy that is found in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone is lost. How do you live with that? Not by ignoring it. I sense for many it's so hard emotionally that it is uh, the kind of thing that we tend to start drifting into imagining it's a kind of fiction it's of no account and there is a kind of Christianity which pursues carefree happy Christian living there's a kind of Christianity that wants a life of blessing as understood by middle class suburban Australia and we do pursue that next trip we give ourselves to just watch another Netflix series to to, to um to, to, to um, entertain ourselves, to, to make our houses beautiful. We, we, uh, the thing that looms over us is a wonderful retirement. How do I get myself set up for that? Where can I do the next trip? How can I make my business be wonderful and great? And, uh, we fill our lives with hobbies and trivia. While at the very time our world is heading towards this judgment. 
How ought things be different for us? How did it play out for God? Well, he gave and he gave everything that there might be a way for sinners to be saved. He did not spare that which was most precious to him. He did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Do you see where this is going? What are we giving? What are we giving? Who know the truth of these things? Now, it might be that there are some amongst us this morning who, who haven't reflected on these things, haven't been aware of a judgment to come and so on. And I would urge you this morning to respond by throwing yourself on the mercy of God in the merits of Jesus, that you might look to Jesus and see him as the saviour who saves you. It won't be because you turn over new living and become better. It'll only be because you plead for mercy, a mercy that God has delivered us in the person of Jesus who died as our substitute. Come to him and find life this morning. But many others of us, we, we, we need to be woken up. We need to snap out of our apathy, our drift. We, we need to stop imagining that the aim of life is to live a casual, relaxed Christian life where we happily enjoy things. How can that be what matters in life when the world around us is headed for where it is? Friends, we must be different, especially because we have the words of eternal life. We have the answer, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The answer that it's not about being good, it's about being forgiven, which will transform your life to be good and righteous and holy. We have the news of a saviour who has paid, who has gone where we deserve to go so that we don't need to go. These things are massive you see, this three weeks, this four weeks, this series is an important one, EV Grow. But let me just say at the outset, it's, it's not really about the money. Yes, we've got to pay bills and we've got to raise money. But, I, you know, on behalf of the pastoral leadership of this church, I can confidently say, we don't care if we don't get the money as much as we care that you are transformed and changed to be captivated by what we need to be captured by. We care more that you see eternal things and become more like the Lord Jesus, captured by those things, and give yourself to pursuing what matters most. That's what we care about. But that will be shown in giving. It will show in our prayers, in our seriousness, our broken hearts that cry out for salvation, our change in our plans and decisions where we might not do as much as we were going to do like the friends around us. We might stop doing that for the sake of using that for something. We might give ourselves more to ministry. We might pray kingdom, pray kingdom prayers and we might be more sacrificial. We might attend upon church services more seriously and give ourselves to the task of stirring one another to love and good deeds. My burden this morning is that we might rekindle an awareness that what matters is being right before God for that day. 
And so the question for you this morning is, how will your life be different from this time on if you truly capture a deeper glimpse of what matters in our future? What will change? And if nothing changes, well, I don't know what to say. It must. What will your prayers change? What will change in your prayers? You're speaking, you're inviting of people to explore in Christianity. What will change in your finances? The aim of life is not to end with a great bundle of money to give to your kids. The aim of life is not to raise up as much as they can. The aim of life is to pour yourself out, to give and give for the sake of the great need our world is in. What will change? What will be different? I'm going to give you a minute to think and then I'm going to pray. While I think, while you think, the band is going to come up. But let me just take some time. How will life be different? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would, in your mercy, give us a deeper glimpse of the realities of heaven and hell. That you might help us capture what Jesus so evidently saw, that our lives might be different. Help us change what needs to change. Help those amongst us who don't know you to come to Jesus and find life. Help those of us who know Jesus live lives that reflect that fact and we ask it in his name. Amen.